Welcome to Shortcut to Slim, a research-based podcast on dieting and nutrition, brought to you by GetMealPlans.com. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon, and for the season one finale, I'll be answering the big question that's been looming all season. Are we obese by design? That is, have we evolved or adopted to obesity? But before I can get into that question, I want to talk to you about alcohol. How alcohol affects weight loss has been a highly requested topic all season, and I didn't want to leave you hanging. So here's the deal with alcohol. When alcohol is consumed, it's the first fuel to burn. That means anything else you eat with alcohol is probably going to be stored as fat, even if it normally wouldn't be. To be clear, alcohol does not turn into fat. Instead, by drinking alcohol, everything else you're eating does. You don't have a beer belly, you have a pizza and chicken wings belly, or whatever food you were eating before or with your alcohol. And here's the double whammy. Consuming alcohol also effectively puts a lock on the pantry door, keeping you from being able to clean it out, even if you aren't eating while drinking. Alcohol basically presses the pause button on your metabolism because as long as there's alcohol in your system, you're literally unable to burn the stores of fat in your belly, your butt, or anywhere else you can pinch. Then two, alcohol reduces self-control and your inhibitions by temporarily impairing the prefrontal cortex. And because a lot of the mixers are simple sugar loaded, they send your blood sugar on a roller coaster ride that leaves you just dizzy enough that you booty call your ex-boyfriends. And by ex-boyfriends, I mean potato chips, french fries, mas margaritas, and all the things you broke up with but are now starting to think, I miss you, we're soulmates, let's go get married in Vegas. Okay, maybe I went a little too far with that last analogy, but you get the point. Alcohol isn't just calorically bad news either. It's metabolic bad news too, and it's going to set you up for some serious self-sabotage. Actually, let's back up and talk about the calorie part. Alcohol is its own calorie bomb at 7 calories per gram, which is just below pure fat, aka oil, which has 9 calories per gram. So yes, alcohol is a lot like drinking oil, and also like oil, alcohol is totally devoid of nutrition, so it's quote, empty calories, and it's not satiating at all. Carbohydrates and protein, by comparison, are 4 calories per gram, so a little less than half, I like to think of alcohol as taking seconds without actually having seconds. And if a hangover isn't enough of a punishment, most people have surges in cravings, particularly for fatty and greasy foods, the day after drinking, because the body needs to repair all the damage you caused, and it knows fat is the most calorically dense, and like you, it wants a quick fix. Plus, if you're dehydrated, which of course you are since alcohol is a diuretic, you're even more likely to feel twinges of hunger or what you think is a hunger pain but is probably just your body saying, hey, we need fluids. But I get it. Alcohol is fun and it's a huge part of our social lives. So how can one have a cocktail and still lose weight? First, you'll need to budget for it calorically, which doesn't mean skipping meals to save calories, but rather limit all other splurges that day and probably that week too. What I mean by that is if you're going to participate in the champagne toast at a wedding, then pass on the wedding cake or pass on the pizza and chicken wings and eat a salad with your beer. Hey, I never said you could have your cake and drink your beer too. 
More importantly, drink simply. The least amount of ingredients, the better. Have whiskey or bourbon on the rocks, mix flavored vodkas with water or seltzer, or mix a hard liquor with a zero-calorie beverage. This next part is anecdotal. There hasn't been a lot of studies comparing the different kinds of alcohol. The studies we do have tend to compare total consumption with no deference given to the exact type of drink. So I can't science this too much yet, but over the years, both with my own personal weight loss journey, as well as helping hundreds of others through Mill Mentor and the meal plans, it seems that wine and beer are the most inhibitive when it comes to weight loss. That is, if you drink wine or beer, you'll gain or lose less than someone who's drinking just hard alcohol like a shot of tequila or a martini. I'm not sure if it's because beer is basically liquid bread and wine is basically spiked juice or because people tend to eat when they drink beer or wine or because people tend to drink more volume of beer or wine or they drink beer or wine longer, meaning for more hours. But it's something I've definitely witnessed firsthand, even if I can't work out the science part yet. And what about all those studies that say alcohol consumption is healthy? Quoting Dr. McDougall here, we love to hear good news about our bad habits. If you maintain even somewhat of a healthy diet, as I presume you are, it takes a healthy-minded person to listen to a research podcast focusing on health and nutrition, then drinking isn't going to make you healthier. But if you're the average American on the standard American diet, maybe. Bottom line, I think we can all agree that alcohol isn't a bowl of fruit and kale, and that alcohol is high in calories and likely to make you overeat more calories or at least prevent you from burning calories, which isn't doing you any favors in the battle against the bulge, because what's that one and only beautifully simple thing about weight loss? That's right. You have to have a caloric deficit, and not drinking definitely makes that easier. Now for the big kahuna of the episode. Are we obese by design? Have we evolved or adapted to obesity? Here's what we know from this season. We are adapted to eating cooked foods. All animals, including fish and insects, grow best on cooked foods. But unlike all other animals, we humans are actually adapted to cooked foods, meaning we can't eat or thrive optimally on an all-raw wild diet. This is proven by looking at our anatomy and our evolutionary history. For example, humans have small mouths, small teeth, weak jaws, and tiny lips, all of which are adapted to finely mashing softer cooked foods, not chewing hard, tough, raw material. We also have small stomachs and short intestinal tracts, which limits our effectiveness at digesting raw materials, but all the small things enable us to process cooked foods with exceptional proficiency. From an evolutionary standpoint, this was like winning the Powerball, especially when food was so scarce. Without cooking, we would have to eat approximately twice our body weight in raw materials every day, like apes do, meaning our entire job would be to eat while simultaneously foraging for more food all day long. Anyone who has ever been in debt can attest it's difficult, if not impossible, to advance when you're living paycheck to paycheck, which is what we would essentially be doing. But by cooking our food, we increase energy gains without added effort. That's like getting a big fat raise in Christmas bonus. The energy theory of cooking is the basis of Richard Wrangham's book, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, which I highly recommend for a deeper exploration. 
There is a massive downside to our exceptional proficiency at digesting cooked foods in this modern world, though. The more tender, soft, or finely divided a food is, the more easily and completely it is digested. Which brings us back to the Oreo versus orange example, that you're probably not going to digest or store every calorie or nutrient of bioavailability in an orange, but you can bet your bottom dollar you're probably going to digest and absorb every calorie in an Oreo. Then too, the softer a food is, the easier it is to digest. And the easier it is to digest, the less metabolic effort is required. And less metabolic effort means you're saving energy. In other words, highly processed foods make you more efficient at digesting and storing. You become more like a Prius and less like a Hummer. And if you're burning less gas, well, you know what that means. More storage, no caloric deficit, fat, 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 fat. So modern foods definitely tilt the scale towards being obese by design, if you eat them. For example, most processed foods have been stripped of any fiber, so they literally melt in your mouth. And their ingredients have been blended, pounded, pulverized, or otherwise altered to send you straight to the bliss point. For example, scientists at big food manufacturers have fiddled with the distribution of the fat globules to affect their absorption rate, or mouthfeel as it's known in the industry. The physical shape of salt has also been manipulated, so it hits your tastes harder and faster, improving the flavor burst. This makes processed foods more alluring, pleasuring, and irresistible, so you eat more of them, but it also makes them much, much easier to digest, reducing your metabolic effort. Unfortunately, superabsorption isn't the only consequence to modern foods. These foods are also nutritionally inadequate, not satiating, and consuming them can also affect how you experience the catabolic phase of digestion, which can lead you to still more eating, which is an even bigger problem. But before I can get into all of that, let me clarify one point quickly. Humans are adapted to cooked foods. A strict raw food diet cannot guarantee adequate energy supply. While processing and cooking gives calories, there's a wide spectrum there. Dieters, please don't start fearing chopped tomatoes, chunky stews, hummus, or applesauce. Their calories are not the same as the super absorbent calories in pretzels, Twinkies, and Big Macs. Eating too frequently also makes us fat, or at least it isn't doing us any favors. Humans are evolved to eating only a few hours per day. For example, Dr. Panda's work from episode 6 tells us that our use of artificial light at night led to an artificial extension of our feeding times, which interferes with our circadian rhythms. That in turn reduces our fasting time between meals, which throws off our digestive system plus the hormones and enzymes that manage it. So you don't process and you don't use the consumed energy as efficiently, which means more storage, which contributes to obesity. I noted in episode six that if you were looking for another reason to batch cook the meal plans, this is a good one. The sooner you can eat, the sooner you can start your fast and or live more in tune with your circadian rhythm. And speaking of fasting, Dr. Panda's theory lines up with intermittent fasting, the science of cellular metabolism, and Furman's anabolic and catabolic hunger from episode 9 perfectly. I've talked intermittent fasting to death this season, but the basis is that by eating all day, your mitochondria, the engines and all my Prius versus Hummer examples, never get a break from processing calories. And that's problematic because like all engines, mitochondria work better when they're properly maintained. 
The other problem has to do with overfueling. Your body stockpiles calories in two ways, in glycogen, quick-burning fuel, which is in your muscles and liver, and as body fat, the slow, saved-for-a-rainy-day fuel, which is stored in all the places you can pinch. Using your groceries as an example, your glycogen is a bowl of fresh strawberries, instant food, while your fat is a can of dusty chickpeas way in the back of your pantry. By fasting and not eating so much all the time, your body gets to the chickpeas sooner. Let me explain. When you wake up, your body starts looking for energy to burn to power up your arms and legs, so it goes straight to the quick energy ready and waiting for you in your glycogen. But then you eat breakfast, oatmeal, a bagel, a croissant, smoothies, whatever, and now your body has a new source of glycogen, the breakfast. Your body is thinking, why would I eat this dusty can of old chickpeas if there's fresh fruit available now? And that fruit's going to go bad soon, so let's eat these strawberries and stick the chickpeas back in the pantry. What's another few days or months or years? It can wait. And by eating all the time, you basically run out to the store and buy new groceries rather than suck it up and eat what's in your cupboard. And if you don't completely zero out your pantry before you go shopping or take care to only buy exactly what you need down to the last tablespoon of tomato sauce, that's exactly how you end up with an overflowing pantry or excess body fat. Your pantry and belly are the same here. It's all the food you took in and didn't use yet. To lose weight, you have to stop the overbuying and duplicate purchasing. And day after day, you're doing this by eating all the time. And a big reason for why we do this is because we're all addicted to the anabolic phase of digestion, probably thanks to that horrible eat six small meals a day to lose weight advice, which for the record, that is really, really bad advice. What do I mean by we're all addicted to the anabolic phase? We like to feel full and satiated. Most of us all out fear hunger, which is another issue for another episode, but we all out fear hunger and we loathe the withdrawal symptoms that can happen a few hours after we've eaten when we enter the catabolic stage. So we eat again because eating provides relief from those symptoms and indulging the addiction is pleasurable. But this also makes becoming overweight inevitable because we have to keep eating or we have to eat heavy meals that require long periods of digestion in order to keep that pleasureful digestive stage going. But this delays the catabolic phase where we can actually use up the very foods we've taken in. So we effectively stockpile, store fat instead. Choosing poor quality food also makes you want to eat more poor quality foods and eat more food overall because of the toxic hunger, those unpleasant feelings during the catabolic phase that we interpret as hunger when it's not actual biological hunger, just hunger for relief from the detoxification process, which is caused by the poor diet. Rangan said something about eating too frequently and hunger too, and how going without food was a normal part of the human condition. Rangan wrote, Until the development of agriculture, it was the human fate to suffer regular periods of hunger, typically, it seems, for several weeks. Bottom line, the one and only beautiful simple part to weight loss is that you must have a calorie deficit. And by being overfed in any way, shape, or form, you're doing yourself no favor. 
But to take some pressure off ourselves, it's not totally 100% our fault that we're obese and overeating. Brian Wansing's research on environmental stimulus in episode 8 sparked my question, are we obese by design? Brian's research tells us that we're not all gluttons and food addicts on a feeding frenzy 24-7. Food is addictive, true, but our very environments have a million triggers, nudges, and scripts that influence us to eat, 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 and overeat. Plus, all the misinformation floating around isn't helping either. Brian says, and I completely agree with him, that we can't rely solely on willpower. Instead, we have to change our environments, our thoughts, and modify our behavior, which, surprise, is the focus of season two. But coming back to this season, this is why it's critical you have a meal plan in place, follow it, and pre-portion to lose weight. You just can't rely on intuition or guesses or estimations, and you definitely, definitely can't rely on labels and fitness apps because they can be off by 20% or more. So for now, this is your focus. The food you choose to eat matters the most. Not only that a calorie is not a calorie, you'll remember from episode two that not all calories are nutritionally equivalent, for example, carrots compared to carrot cake, and that not all calories satiate the same way, comparing potatoes to potato chips, and that some calories are more easily absorbed or stored than others and or affect how you might absorb or store calories in the future. For example, pre-digested foods like smoothies are hummus or highly processed foods like Oreos and Doritos are absorbed much more easily than whole foods. And likewise, sometimes the metabolic cost is too high to store the excess calories you took in. It all depends on the source of that calorie. For example, dietary fat is very easily stored as fat, but calories from carbohydrates are not as easily stored. Remember, too, that there's no such thing as a slow metabolism or starvation mode and that you can't break or screw up your metabolism purely from dieting, but that exercise, unhealthy, or other Herculanean efforts to lose weight may have temporary or permanent physiological and psychological consequences. I talked a lot about that in Episode 7 when I discussed the New York Times Biggest Loser article. One point I've been trying to make all season is this. We can't cheat or outmath nature, and anytime we try to, we pay a consequence. I think the Biggest Loser episode really exemplifies this. It's also a testament that when you do anything radical or just anything in the body, period, too many variables come into play to predict or pinpoint causes or effects with specificity. And since I brought up the Biggest Loser article in Herculanean Exercise, let me touch on that topic quickly since exercise is another topic that comes up all the time with our members. A lot of people assume I'm anti-exercise because I discourage it during weight loss. For the record, I'm not against physical movement in and of itself. I simply recognize that it's a lot easier to control caloric input for weight loss than it is to create deficiency with caloric output via exercise. Brian Wansink and David Zingzenko from this season are both in agreement with me. David noted, quote, it would take a 155-pound man 15 minutes of jogging to burn off a Twinkie, which is a lot of time to burn off something you ate in less than a minute. And Brian's pudding study is what shifted my mindset off exercise for weight loss altogether. 
In the pudding study, Brian and his team broke conference attendees up into three groups. The control group left the lecture and went straight to lunch. The rest were divided into two groups, one being told they were taking on a scenic walk before lunch, and the other group was being taken on an exercise walk. It was the same walk, same loop, same pace. The only difference was the exercise group was with a trainer who told them how far they went, and the other group went with like a biologist who pointed out birds and plants and stuff. Guess what happened? The exercise group took less salad and more chocolate pudding. 35% more chocolate pudding. Brian tried this experiment with another group a few days later, but instead of pudding at lunch, they brought M&Ms out a few hours later during an afternoon break. The exercise group took more than twice as many M&Ms. Brian says, quote, When we believe we have sacrificed, we compensate by rewarding ourselves later. This really makes me wonder about the psychological effect of the contestants on The Biggest Loser, by the way. Anyway, here's one other point Brian made from his studies. A new gym membership comes with three added pounds of fat. That is, most people, when they join the gym, they gain weight. Fitness apps like MyFitnessPal and Cardio Machines screw you over too because they're so hideously inaccurate and overgenerous. There was a rash of articles earlier this year attesting to this that you can't lose weight from exercise and you want to take your Fitbit off. I'll share a few of them in the show notes on getmealplans.com slash podcast. Here's also a testament from a meal plan user. Carmen wrote, Lindsay, your advice not to exercise was so weird to me the first time I read it, but as someone with more than 50 pounds to lose, I listened. The weight is coming off again, and I'm not doing 90-minute workouts anymore. I don't love them, so it's okay. It was for sure a combination of overeating. I would see the machine said I'd burn 500 calories and think, wow, I can eat real hunger after working really hard, and my body repairing instead of burning fat. When I'm within my 10-pound of goal range, I will return to the gym to tone up and show off the muscles that might even start to be visible. Carmen's referencing another point I make often to members but haven't had a chance to talk about on the podcast yet. Exercise creates too many variables, and if you're exercising all the time, your body is getting mixed messages about what you want it to do. Do you want it to burn off fat, or should it be getting busy doing tons of repair work? Stop making the chore list so long and confusing. But ultimately, I think the main point about exercising and the unconscious eating that Brian talked about with his study is that there is a suffering component there. We reward ourselves when we feel we have suffered. So people who are forcing themselves to go to the gym or play a workout DVD and are doing all of these things to lose weight or get fit are suffering. And they'll reward themselves consciously or unconsciously or both. And a lot of us do this just with other kinds of suffering in our lives, such as when we emotionally eat. Here's another example. If I drag Carly on a six-mile walk with me, Carly is allergic to exercise. She gets no joy out of it. Even if she ends up enjoying the time we spend together or the scenery, or even if she feels I'm glad I did that afterward, because hiking is not something she normally does on her own, because it was something I made her do, she will reward herself consciously or unconsciously or both because she suffered. However, if Carly and I went shopping all day at the mall on Saturday, trying on clothes and stuff, we would probably also walk six miles. But that suffering mental component is not there, so Carly is at no risk for rewarding herself consciously, unconsciously, or both. 
I see this compensation all the time with my husband, too. He loves baseball, loves everything about it, even playing it. He will play baseball hard for several hours and maybe eat a little granola bar in the middle of the game. But if I take him hiking with me or to yoga, which I know he does not enjoy, but he comes because he knows I love it and I want him to, he always, always eats a ton more food that day. Realistically, the hike or the yoga class did not burn more calories than an afternoon of baseball, but it's that mental suffering component. The biggest problem is how dishonest people are. They say they like working out, but they don't really. They might like the results it gets them, they might like the status they get from saying they work out on Facebook, but most people don't actually like to exercise, and they don't think they can admit to that either. If someone genuinely likes exercising, then they won't sabotage themselves. So how do you know if you genuinely like to exercise? You'll pay $15 to do it every time. Test this by donating $15 to charity every time you exercise. You'd gladly pay $15 to see a movie or buy a new top, two things you enjoy. And you'd pay that for a manicure and a nice lunch or two drinks with a girlfriend. These are all things you enjoy, but they're not necessities, and you'd easily pay $15 or more to do them. So if you like to exercise, you'll pay $15 to do it. To summarize, I'm only anti-exercise as a weight loss strategy, and for four reasons. Number one, the big one, you can't out-exercise your mouth. Number two, most of us have no time and no interest. Let's be real. And if you still need convincing, think of it this way. It's far better to invest the time you'd spend at the gym by shopping and batch cooking your meals or even just doing some household chores, most of which burn a lot of calories but don't have the same mental trick. Number three, exercising tends to be more self-sabotaging than self-supporting. And finally, number four, which comes from my days as a personal trainer. Clients used to get upset with me that they weren't improving and wanted to blame me. I'd get real with them and say, look, I'm only with you two hours per week. You're with you 166 hours per week. Final thoughts. Here's a quote I came across recently that I really liked. Quote, if your efforts can be summarized as cyclical, episodic, concentrated bouts of suffering, during which your aim isn't the healthiest life that you can enjoy, but rather you can tolerate, well, go figure you're not likely to keep it. This echoes what I say over and over with Meal Mentor and the Slim Team training program. Nothing you do with your diet and lifestyle is temporary unless you only want your results to be temporary. Marathoners don't get to cross a finish line and stay there for forever. They have to keep training. And that's what you have to do. You have to take it one maintainable step at a time because the best diet is the one you don't know you're on and the one you're not always thinking about. Liking the life you're living while you're losing weight is the big secret, along with having a plan in place and a support system either in person or online. Finally, I've spent this whole episode, really this whole season, trying to find a one-liner that beautifully sums this all up, like Michael Pollan's famous, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Maybe I can work off that and say, eat mostly plants, not too much, not too often, not too early, not too late. 
Thank you for listening to season one of the Shortcut to Slim podcast. If you have enjoyed these episodes, please leave a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon, and I'll be back in a few months for season two.